Welcome to Anatopod, the first podcast teaching human anatomy. My name is Andrews Barr. I was a past professor of surgery for many years and am now a part-time senior tutor in anatomy and postgraduate and undergraduate surgical anatomy and operative surgery um, at Melbourne University in Australia. I'm introducing something new in the teaching of something old. What I'm starting is an anatomy podcast to teach anatomy, particularly to postgraduates, largely because, in my opinion, anatomy is not taught particularly well. Now, that may seem like a paradox in the face of a range of teaching instruments, but this been, since the 1980s, a systematic attempt at universities to dismantle the power of anatomy as a specialist division within medical schools in particular and to relegate it to something almost trivial in many undergraduate and postgraduate experiences. Now with the COVID-19 pandemic, all university departments, not just anatomy, have been placed under excessive stress and scrutiny for the type of course they're delivering, and not without good reason, have they been largely found wanting. Departments with the greatest access to material are, it seems, unable to deliver a teaching experience for something so basic as anatomy, where the brief is the transfer of certain collective and basic quanta of data. Now, in fairness, the universities were somewhat astonishingly clearly unprepared for remote learning. They hadn't curated their prosection material. There was no consensus on a core data set of information about anatomy that was needed at both postgraduate and undergraduate level. It's not like they didn't have a lot of time to figure this out. Um, In short, we found ourselves, if you like, on a desert island where we could just as easily have been asked, what anatomy book or anatomy model or a video or a specimen or a prosection would you like to take with you on such a journey? Now, how could this be? Well, one reason is the same as the problem high school teachers have in conveying their message to younger students. Relevance. What good is a quadratic equation or calculus or logarithms in the real world? One task for the teacher is to jettison some of the irrelevancies of their subject and to teach their students why what they're learning is ostensibly pertinent. Anatomy has exactly that same problem. A disconnected set of facts without context is just that. It's a list to be remembered. And it explains why anatomy, for those who take it seriously or who use it every day, like the surgeon or the radiologist, has to be continually relearnt. So one answer of this problem, if we accept this point, is to contextualise anatomy. To always ask ourselves, why does this particular point matter? Why is it important? Or as I most commonly ask my students, if perhaps only to 
wake them up from one of my boring monologues. Who cares? I'm convinced that contextualising anatomy aids memory. The subject must resonate with the students. But I want to take this sequentially. Firstly, we need to, in my opinion, admit that there is a problem. Now, um, we have more access to anatomical material than ever before. If an anatomist from the Renaissance were to walk into a dissection hall today, he, as there were very few women allowed, would only have the cadaver as common territory. All the rest, the models, the visible human project, anatomical slices, whether they be axial, coronal or sagittal, the reconstructed imagery, computer-generated images, CD-ROMs, preserved prosections and plastinated specimens would all be pretty alien to him. We're faced with a myriad of alternatives, substitutes and surrogates, which are all designed to tell him, in some ways, what he already knew. Secondly, why is there a problem? Now, this is a straightforward enough question with a rather complicated and historical answer. Suffice to say that where we are now is a consequence of a not-so-quiet revolution which began in the 1980s to reform the way medicine was taught to medical students that in its net caught up the way anatomy was taught without the imposition of any kind of national or supranational criterion for what a basic standard of anatomical knowledge should be. So first we have to go back to before the 1980s when I started medicine, actually in 1973, and the lie of the land was this. Students didn't see patients until their fourth year, and the first three years were spent preparing them for clinical examination. In the areas of organic chemistry, biology, including comparative animal biology and cell biology, botany, which we studied, if you can believe it, physics, anatomy, pathology, immunology, microbiology, pharmacology, and a rather nebulous discipline called medical studies, which these days would equate more with epidemiology and public health. This was what we did for the first three years before even seeing a patient. The view, the philosophy, if you will, was simple, namely that in the case of anatomy, there could be no consistent, safe and reproducible examination of a living patient, and therefore that these undergraduate subjects were the foundation for medical understanding. Now, this is really a very historical view, and it's actually one which predates much of radiology, considering that X-rays were introduced by Wilhelm Röntgen in 1895. Examination of patients was a ritualistic process. The chest observed for its symmetry of movements, for example, to separate those cases with pneumonia, where in the 1970s conditions like tuberculosis were still pretty common in my neighbourhood. Anatomy and its descriptors have always reflected anatomical and fascial planes, for example, in terms of the spread of such chronic infections. And it's, for example, true that the prevertebral fascia in the neck is a fascia that extends from the base of the skull to the bottom of the third thoracic vertebra, is only of clinical and anatomical relevance because it limits the spread of a paraspinal abscess, which develops from chronic thoracic vertebral osteomyelitis. Almost all of that osteomyelitis was thoracic tuberculosis, or POTS disease, so named after the 18th century English anatomist 
supersival pot, and since tuberculosis of the spine was commonest of all in the thoracic spine, followed by the cervical and then the lumbar. The reason for naming these fasci was entirely historical. It doesn't have any clinical significance really effectively anymore. I have in this, in a sense, two points which I want to make. Here's an example of a fascia which has limited clinical value now, perhaps of significance in spread of a rare osteogenic sarcoma today, but which was described because of its historical importance. And secondly, somewhat against what teaching we have today to preclude eponymous terminology, but rather in the quest to understand the subject, it's relevant that we actually embrace history. And a second part of this podcast series is on the history of dissection and the history of anatomy. It's a ritualistic process, and it didn't come about by accident. And so I hope you'll find the additional podcasts which include history of anatomy of value. There's also a third podcast uh, once monthly on embryology. And I would maintain that if you know a little bit of embryology, you know a lot of anatomy. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work the other way around. But a little knowledge of embryology is going to go a long way in understanding anatomy. As an aside, the ritual of dissecting the corpse is one developed over the last millennium. In effect, every contemporary dissection brings with it past dissections and their customs. As part of these podcasts, I'm deliberately including a history of anatomy and history of dissection section. Anatomy is its history, and this history should be no more be ignored than any faculty of philosophy might ignore its own chronological development. Anatomy has lost a lot of its faculty clout precisely because its antagonists successfully argued that much of it was antiquated. Anatomy is history, and history anatomy. To deny this limits the teaching experience, and this podcast, or at least this podcaster, believes that anatomy without history neuters an otherwise healthy bull. True, it's a dusty subject, often taught by even dustier specimens than the ones they're holding up, but let's try and change that. The added point to this 1970s and before view of anatomy was that knowledge of anatomy could best be obtained by an up-close and personal experience with a corpse. Now I'd suggest that the corpse and this personalised dissection experience is the motif of the medical school and the university, a whole subject that we'll consider in the History of Anatomy podcast that examines corporeal acquisition the nefarious processes of grave robbing and body snatching performed as it was in the United Kingdom by marauding gangs called the Resurrectionists and in the United States, the so-called Sack'em-Up Men. Now, I don't want to also get into the mythical nature of medical school teaching and indeed practice, which artificially separates the undergraduate and the postgraduate experiences. These are not divided processes. Traditional anatomy is gross anatomy, the macroscopic visible structure or topographical anatomy which is taught by didactic lectures supplemented by personal dissection. Now this approach too didn't come from nowhere. Anatomy from the time of the Romans and certainly up through medieval times and into the Renaissance was taught from canonical textbooks. The father of anatomy was Claudius Galen, who lived around 100 AD, and who as personal physician to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, 
described a lot of anatomy, but as it turned out from his dissections of animals, mostly in the Barbary ape, the so-called Macacus sylvianus, that was his favourite, and not from any experience with any human dissection. The only experience he had of the human body was perhaps gladiatorial, from witnessing wounds at the Colosseum and other barbaric sports, as well as from observing bodies which were exhumed from excavation sites. Up until that time, the instruction of anatomy was provided by the 13th century medieval anatomist, a fellow called Mondino de Luzzi, or Mondinus as he preferred, from Bologna, who taught from a lectern by reading Galen's texts aloud to a surgeon who was called a dissector, and who then dissected the cadaver, as well as an astensor, a little like a mortuary attendant today, who would then point out all the points in the body dissected by the dissector and discussed by the professor, the points of overlap. Dissection was not used for discovery. It was used as a pedagogical tool, certainly in the medieval approach and beyond that into the Renaissance. That's how anatomy was taught. Now, the Belgian physician, a fellow called Andreas Vesalius, decided around 1530 or so to dissect the cadaver himself and, in effect, to become professor, dissector and ostensor all in one and without intention found so many discrepancies between what Galen had written and what Vesalius himself found that he wrote a treatise called the Fabrica Humani Corpus, the Fabric of the Human Body, in 1543. The second revolutionary thing that he did was to invite the artist, a well-known artist, Jan Stefan van Kalkar, who was a pupil of the Venetian master Tiziano Vicelli, known as Titian, to come into the stench of the dissecting room and draw a series of spectacular woodcut images of the dissections that he saw. Now, these were not the first time that images had been made of dissections, but they were the first concerted effort to visually represent the process of dissection from the skin through the origins of the insertions of the muscles, the arterial and venous tree, the structure of the peripheral nervous system and the viscera. In effect, for the first time, this oral, A-U-R-A-L, tradition of anatomy was overnight converted into a visual enterprise where Vesalius and his students could effectively dissect the human body and confirm the findings that they saw for themselves. The Latin mantra, ex fide oculata, to see with the faith of one's own eyes, was born for anatomy in this sensory switch of the method of learning. After this too, visual representations of anatomy, illustrating anatomy and cadaver dissection, was effectively born. It's a separate subject which considers the anatomy art interface, and I'll take that up in one of the history podcasts. For the 18th century anatomist William Hunter, who opened one of the first but certainly the biggest London private school teaching cadaver anatomy, the student was offered the opportunity of dissecting their own corpse, a method he'd witnessed personally and participated in when in desperation to learn anatomy he couldn't find enough cadavers in London and went to study the techniques in Paris. Here there was a tradition of cadaver dissection and a glut of available bodies with the French Revolution and the activities of Madame la Guillotine. Hunter introduced 
personalised cadaver dissection in London, which is how we learned our anatomy, with what he referred to as the promise of a Parisian method. The supply-demand equation, such as it became, uh, showed that bodies, by the time we studied anatomy in the 1970s, were allocated to between two to four students per half-side. It was that kind of practical approach about the number of bodies that were available compared to who would get the dissecting experience. But that's how we learnt. We learnt from something that was translated as the Parisian method by William Hunter in London in the 18th century. With the introduction of the new digital technology, bodies through the visible human project took a male and a female and they cryofroze them and sliced them into half to one millimetre slices, then imaging them with both CT and MRI, creating a digital stacked library of the entire cross-sectional and other dimensional body. Now, although this VHP developed in Boulder, Colorado, through the National Institute of Health in 1995, it's now a visual CD-ROM, which allows the body to be reconstituted after its dissection. The data concerning the body is now digitally collated. And so, instead of dissection, you can orthogonally move and scroll up and down, dissecting and reconstituting the body. It's a different process. Once more, the body, in a sense, has become a text, a liber corporum. Once more, the uh, book of the body becomes evident. This podcast accepts that anatomy is not taught particularly well and wishes to once more return to that oral, A-U-R-A-L medium, as a mechanism of teaching and learning human anatomy. So there's something historical, if you like, and regenerative in this approach. To continue with our story concerning the 1980s reforms of the medical school and of anatomy in particular, they were led by McMaster University in Canada, and they spread like wildfire from there. Inherent in the McMaster view was that contemporary medical education was an overcrowded curriculum that was clinically unconnected with an emphasis on excessive memorisation, and that there was a passive learning experience as a result. We might accept that computerised learning and the introduction of biomedical informatics and the new radiology actually compounded the impact of that philosophy. As early as 1977 in my own city of Melbourne, Australia, surgical colleagues were, uh, and colleges were meeting to express a grave concern about inadequate knowledge of undergraduate and later postgraduate anatomy, as well as a decline in the number of medically qualified anatomy teachers. This already, almost instantaneously after the decision to truncate anatomy, became a recognisable problem. Now, these concerns and questions have not gone away. The only thing that seems to have gone away further has been the medically qualified anatomy teachers. Moreover, the response, not just by our universities, but by most universities worldwide, has been to reduce all of these aspects of anatomy training irrespective of what the ultimate vocation of the student is going to be. If that's not enough, there are some complicating factors. The landscape has changed. There's sophisticated clinical imaging and reconstruction. That's reduced a reliance on clinical examination or indeed even its accuracy. 
Such radiology has even changed the natural history of disease. Complicated intra-abdominal infection after surgery, for example, is now diagnosed very early without producing the classical clinical signs that were hallowed parts of the examination. Radiology, because of its anatomical accuracy, has changed how such disease presents. Secondly, there's been an increased use of real-time ultrasonography, which has created its own new anatomical imagery and familiarity. That's particularly so, as we know, in obstetrics and fetal medicine, but in all fields, particularly incorporating echocardiography, hepatico-pancreatico-biliary medicine and gynaecology. Plastination, a procedure which replaces a lot of the water content of the body with ethanol and then high-pressured plastic polymers, as designed by the pathologist Gunther van Hagens, has removed the cadaver in many schools and replaced it with a hardy, dissected plastic, a kind of human hybrid alternative. Now, there are advantages here. This kind of plastinated specimen is odourless, dry and durable. But there are also disadvantages. It's rather hard to appreciate the three-dimensional relationships of structures, something lying on top of something else. It's like some of the wax moulages. You don't get a great sense of depth or layering. But there's other things as well. CGI, which includes the VHP project, which I've mentioned, and that's been modified for cadaveric exposure. There are many examples of these new CGI models which are available online, and these can include the Singapore Brain, the University of Michigan Pelvis, the University of Pennsylvania Knee, the Stanford Anatomage Table, or the Korean Head. There are all these possibilities that we can look at online. Now, not unreasonably, all of this may make us ask the more generic question, what values do we want with our anatomy training? Do we want it to develop our manual dexterity? Or is it that something that tends to be learned elsewhere at the operating table? How useful is cadaveric dissection to surgery or radiology? Anatomists will provide you with a different answer to clinicians. There's no question about that. We know that those demonstrators who dissect seem to know and retain more anatomy and that students, if questioned, prefer to be trained by professional anatomy tutors. The question is, however, does it matter? Other ancillary benefits of formal anatomy training include an emphasis on the importance of anatomical variations, a point I'll come back to later in this podcast, and the potential introduction of a better death perspective and reverence, and as I've stated, and an appreciation of the historical influences of ritual on contemporary dissection. Now I want to briefly talk about this dissecting experience for a moment before, with this podcast, we effectively put it aside as a teaching instrument. Dissection has an overlain ethical perspective. One of the things that's unique about the dissecting experience is the psychological impact of its introduction early into the training of doctors in particular. That's not to decry this experience amongst dentists or physiotherapists or occupational therapists or veterinarians, paramedics, biologists and almost anyone who's likely at some stage in their training to come into contact with the cadaver. This early introduction was deliberately meant to challenge and transform the neophyte. I must say, 
that I always, at least until recently, thought this early introduction of anatomy so early into a medical course was even a little cruel. It seemed that way. In my transition from high school to medical school, I was so concerned with the impending dissection that for a short while I went to a therapist to overcome my fears. I might say that the cure, if there needed to be one, was what immunologists refer to as simple exposure therapy. Sometimes our greatest fears are, of course, those which we generate internally against events or problems that never eventuate, but that, of course, is a podcast for another occasion. There's no doubt about dissection's exceptionality. The 18th century surgeon John Hunter, about whom I'll create a podcast for the history of anatomy section of this series, wrote about the idea of detachment in his, quote, essays and observations on natural history, anatomy, physiology, psychology and geology, unquote, which was posthumously published in 1861. He wrote that, quote, anatomy is the basis of surgery. It informs the head, guides the hand and familiarises the heart to a kind of necessary inhumanity. Echoing these sentiments, the chair of the History of Medicine at Yale, John Harley Warner, wrote that anatomy is the only discipline through study capable of destroying rather than building empathy. And we must not lose sight of this fact, no matter how clinical and seemingly remote the nature and the content of our study. Along these lines, the pathologist... Uh, London pathologist Alan Bates, in an article entitled Indecent and Demoralising Representations on Mid-Victorian Anatomy Museums, designed for the public, wrote that, quote, professionals by virtue of their education, social background and character were deemed impervious to influences that could corrupt the weaker-minded public, unquote. Whether one may be considered a traditionalist or a modernist on this matter, we do know that a truncated knowledge of anatomy has significance in the courts, with one-third of claims made to medical defence organisations of problems incurred during operations due to inadvertent injury to underlying important anatomical structures. For those wishing to skate over the need to know anatomical variations, in most of these medico-legal cases it is the variant anatomy and its knowledge by the surgeon that is critical in a report uh, by Professor Harold Ellis, which examined medico-legal litigation and its links with anatomy. And I'll leave these particular links on the attached Facebook Anatopod Plus um, site. Anatopod underscore plus, all capitals. It's a Facebook site uh, that you can use to look at additional articles and at the uh, list of references. Whatever the side of the argument, there's a consequence now of our adoption of a reduced anatomy curriculum. It's altered the hard wiring of our brains just as much as um, Carter's drawings for Henry Gray modified the ways in which we learn and remember things of importance in anatomy. But in so doing, anatomy has singled itself out from the other faculties. There's no other university department which has reacted in quite this way by overhauling much of what it has traditionally preached simply because it appears antiquated. Whole faculties of philosophy, by comparison, stand tall on and take pride in their historical rhetoric, and they make no apology for cementing their foundation by suggesting that the hard traditionalist yards 
can or should be skipped. Any learning process that each of us would have gleaned from our most junior school days is the applicative wisdom of what we studied, and not so much its irrelevance. So, to reiterate, our trick in these podcasts will be to integrate the seemingly irrelevant with, as I have said, the ostensibly pertinent. That aside, it remains for anatomists and clinicians to adequately integrate the latest radiological progeny with either dissections or the operative experience, to incorporate the new anatomies of the laparoscope, the arthroscope, the cystoscope, and almost any cavitoscope, if you wanted to say that, around. However that's done, and with whatever tool most useful, it may not matter, including the cyber cadaver, as much as possible, largely because of its ability to reconstruct, whereas dissection is an inherently destructive and violent process. After all, dragging professional painters into the anatomy rooms, which is what the brain anatomist Thomas Willis did in Oxford just before the Great Fire of London in 1666, in inviting Sir Christopher Wren to come in and to sketch what later became the circle of Willis' blood supply to the brain, there was a recognition that the images were permanent records of ephemeral events. We simply have to accept the new reality. The changes in the UK and in other countries towards memberships and the changes to fellowship programs has meant that there are fewer surgical trainees cutting their teeth on anatomy teaching as anatomy demonstrators. UK surveys for 1998 have shown that 81% of fellowship candidates and only 19% of membership candidates believe that their anatomical knowledge is adequate. So there's some evidence out there that candidates themselves recognise the inadequacies of anatomical teaching, and that's in the pre-COVID environment. Guy's Hospital, in its own 2000 international survey, acknowledged that formal time as an anatomy demonstrator was thought by 100% of those surveyed to have helped them in their examinations, 98% in their communication skills, 96% in future job applications, and 97% in their future career. Great figures, all of which have been accompanied by a marked reduction in practical anatomy demonstrators amongst the medical faculty, and many heads of departments of anatomy de- culling their clinical teachers as we speak. The response has been to kill the messenger. Now, my aim here is not to replace dissection, since there are studies showing that dissection is preferred by medical students over presentations and peer teaching. Guys and Kings and St Thomas's in the GKT study of 2003 reported by Snelling has enhanced the move towards problem-based learning, so-called PBL, which has itself been a strong impetus for anatomy reform with what can be described as both a horizontal and a vertical integration of the different disciplines. But in this PBL system, which is after all a pattern recognition of illness designed to connect basic science concepts and clinical aspects, there have been students, including one by Prince in 2000 from Maastricht, uh, there have been studies, pardon me, including one by Prince in 2000 from Maastricht, clearly showing that PBL students felt deficient in their anatomy training. In effect, everything we've been looking for has shown us that anatomy teaching is worse and less effective and is better performed by clinical anatomy demonstrators, demonstrators who have a clinical background. 
Our response to this has, in fact, been to reduce even further along with the best potential teachers. So we shouldn't be surprised that we've got this problem. Added to this, a 2002 survey by Halings confirmed that most universities in the UK have dispensed with embryology altogether. And as a separate arm to these podcasts, as I've said, I'm creating some embryology discussion with the view that knowing a little embryology, perhaps what we might regard as seminal embryology, goes a long, long way to understanding topographical anatomy. If you know a little embryology, you're actually going to know quite a lot of anatomy and certainly understand it. So in summary, we have no national curriculum in anatomy and therefore no answer as to what our undergraduate or postgraduate standards should be. We have this in a landscape where it's increasingly uncommon for qualified medical personnel to be teaching anatomy. We've reduced hours devoted to anatomy and less cadaveric access, with some medical schools never dissecting, and with some which have adopted the four-year fast track having no anatomy component at all. It is the perfect storm. In conclusion, I'm not going to buy into the argument about the importance of dissection as a practical method of learning anatomy and communication, or even about its shared platform of terminology and medical language. All of these things, including an enhancement of the student's manual dexterity, are likely, but not essential to my argument, that we accept that anatomy is neither taught nor learned well. I also don't wish to get into the weeds, as the Americans say, about balance. We'll include aspects of surface anatomy and radiological anatomy, which some have felt should be a core, which is introduced early into the student experience with a sufficient general anatomy for system-based PBL introduced later. My aim is different and not so sequential. I anticipate that undergraduates listening to our podcasts may not appreciate some of the clinical relevance, but they should not be insulated from it. The approach is one which starts off being integrated and which is not incremental. I feel that it's only in this integrated manner, combining preclinical with the clinical, however artificial that is, that the idea of contextualisation and relevance, as I've described, can then be obtained. Any other approach suffers the serious criticism that anatomy as it is taught is then merely a collection of disconnected facts, and I believe that's the principal reason why it's regarded by most students with dread and also why it's been taught so spectacularly badly. Uh, That may seem pretty harsh, but uh, let's recognise that we've got a problem and see if we can move forward. In theory, at least, anatomy is possibly the easiest subject to teach, and yet it's one of the hardest to learn and to stick. We may somewhat reluctantly come to the conclusion that the problem with anatomy is not the subject itself, but how it's taught and who's teaching it. If anatomy is unknown, if its history is unexamined, then patients themselves are left unexamined, with an increasing reliance on high-resolution and, fair enough, highly accurate radiology, which is then used in a far less cost-effective manner and a less discriminatory way. We have, of course, seen it with the devolution of complex machinery like the CAT scan and the MRI machine to smaller and smaller environments and even into mobile centres. Now, this development is not bad, but it doesn't advance the cause of patient examination and the hand... uh, 
um, of a good knowledge uh, uh, of anatomy uh, has in good examination and in the maintenance of clinical skills. In theory, this blunderbuss approach to patient care could potentially even disadvantage the clinical monitoring of elderly patients where their examination in particular of these patients guides an assessment of the natural progression of their particular diseases. The idea of radiological monitoring in the absence of much clinical examination, however, has become pretty ingrained into our communitarian practice and approach towards cancer follow-up, for example, where our patients are forever waiting for clearance offered by the latest scan. Whether or not time lost and spent with the cadaver, the motif of the medical school, will have an impact on our empathy as, as physicians, or whether it's a major contributor to what the New York cultural anthropologist Ule Linke has called a general atrophy of public empathy, that remains to be seen. Anatopod aims to reverse at least a little bit of this trend. Nothing more, but perhaps also nothing less. So in the next episode, I want to begin with an overview of the head and neck anatomy, and we'll start with the head and neck as the point of most definable complexity, and because it'll assist us in structuring some of the human body, for example, in shaping the layout of the autonomic nervous system, as an example. There'll generally be weekly podcasts, building up a podcast library over the next year, with the addition of smaller ancillary podcasts that will examine related subjects, such as the plexi or individual bones and the like. Ancillary podcasts that will be posted weekly are specifically concerned with the history of anatomy. Actually, I think we'll post those every second week, vignettes on the lives of eminent anatomists and on useful and practical human embryology, as I've said, that will be used as an opportunity to advance the general understanding of anatomy. The reclusive Renaissance artist Jacopo da Pontormo once spoke of the task of the artist being more demanding than that of God. Now, I don't want to wish to offend anyone in any way, as I myself am a rather irreligious person who delights in the stories of the history of religion. One cannot study anatomy without recognising the effect religion and theology had upon its history. Clerics were those who interposed themselves between pagan views of dissection and a religious interpretation of the ideal anatomy of Adam and Eve. It was their job to reconcile the two in the face of the observable features of dissection. It was in some ways as if theology had interposed itself as a type of censorship onto the observable aspects that anyone could witness during human dissection. Others would have it that all dissection proved was the wondrous nature of God's handiwork, so that for the 17th century naturalist Francesco Redi, quote, no other science, anatomy, raises him so far towards God. I think that I can have an undoubted truth that there's never been an important man in the anatomical profession who was an atheist, unquote. In some of these podcasts, it's inevitable that we shall touch on the religion of anatomy, and it's not there for controversy, but rather to remind us of how these two subjects, at least for some, are so linked, and how anatomy attracted so many pious dissectors. So we now from here admit that there's a problem. We admit that as anatomists, clinicians, surgeons and teachers, that we perhaps contributed to that problem. 
and we agree that we need to do something about it. This may well not be rocket science, but I realise that not everybody will like this approach or feel the need to join in. I think it might be something that you can listen to as you go for a daily walk or a run or as you're sitting between cases or patients. We can um, enjoy the freedom to get down some rabbit holes which might well be normally ignored or lost. I think part of this is uh, an expectation that I personally want to change the experience I had of anatomy as both an undergraduate and as a postgraduate, and now as I've had over the last well, 35 years plus of teaching it and examining in it. It's only this reflection that has convinced me that we need change. Let's start that process. Let's begin. And good luck to all.